Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm so glad that you're here with us. Uh, today. Uh, we're in week three of a series called God Behaving Badly. Uh, and this has been a fun series for me. And in fact, if you wanted to uh, go back and listen to past messages, you can download the podcast wherever you download podcasts. Or you can download our app and all that fun stuff and, and, uh, and get the audio from there and also get the sermon notes on the app. Uh, but this has been a fun series because what we're doing is we're trying to take perhaps what is the most egregious case against God. We're going to look at the Bible and we're going to take some passages of Scripture where people would say, man, this is just an open and shut case against God, not in his favor. And we are going to look at this in a way that kind of says, look, we are going to be honest about some things. We're going to be honest that we cannot begin to understand the mind of God. We are not going to try to give an apology for everything that we can't begin to comprehend. But we're going to look at the entire scope of the Bible and these specific verses and try to understand what's going on here. And so today we're asking this question, is God angry or is God loving? Okay, maybe you, maybe you can think of it this way. Maybe you can think about all the times where you have felt as though God was against you. You're afraid that God was going to smite you. Maybe you... You let some four-letter words fly, like, oh, I'm sorry, God. Or, or maybe you cheat on your taxes, oh, I'm sorry, God. Or maybe you feel like you haven't been to church in a long time, and you come in, you think, well, the church is going to collapse, or I'm going to get struck by lightning, or whatever. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a ton of these, but this, one of the far side, far side uh, cartoons I really like is a picture of this here, of, of God kind of sitting at his computer, ready to, to drop a, a piano on somebody. I think this is sometimes our conception of God. The God is just kind of this taskmaster is kind of watching us under the magnifying glass and looking for ways in which to punish us. And what I find is that is all too often accepted, that this is what we think of God, that this is how we think God responds. And so in this series, we're, we're trying to look at some of these things. We're trying to ask some of these hard questions, and they are hard questions. And I recognize in you know, 25, 30 minutes, I'm not going to give a, a great answer or a complete answer in any shape or form. But what we can do is begin to ask some of these questions. So in this series of God behaving badly, something that we're doing is we're going to try to kind of almost depersonalize things a little bit. We're going to use the word for God that we find over and over in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word, and when it's translated in English, it appears just as the Lord. When you read it in the Old Testament, it just says the Lord. And the Hebrew word for God is Yahweh. And Yahweh is, is, is kind of our best analogy here. It would be like God's first name. It's a very personal name. And so, so instead of us saying God is doing this, God is doing that, and it's very very abstract, kind of up here, ethereal way, we're going to ask a question about what is God personally up to, and we're going to ask, is Yahweh angry or loving? But before we go there, obviously I'm not going to resolve all of this. All of this is going to be difficult for us to understand. I'm going to pick out one text here, but you can find other texts where you say, look how mad God is at things that maybe we don't think he should be mad about. But our goal today is not to tie everything up with a nice perfect bow and resolve every question. Our goal here is to begin this conversation in what we think and what I think is a helpful way. So we're going to go to one of these confusing stories about 
Uzzah, which is a fun name if you're looking for a new pet name. Like, can you imagine that? Like, Uzzah, drop that. Or Uzzah, let's go potty. Come on. It's just a fun name. There you go. If you, that's a free one for you. But Uzzah and the ark. Okay? Not, the, not Noah's ark. This is a different ark. And we're going to find this story in 2 Samuel. And this is going to take place during David. David is kind of this, this idyllic, idyllic king of God's people. You remember David and Goliath. He rises and becomes king. He is kind of seen as like the apex of people on earth following God, particularly there in the Old Testament. And in this story, we find this account about the Ark of the Covenant. Now, maybe you think of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, but here's kind of an artistic rendition of the Ark. Now, an important thing there to, for us to remember or see is that pole that goes across this. That the Ark would be transported on a litter where the priests would carry the Ark. Okay, that's an important visualization for us to remember. So in this moment, the ark has kind of this incredible, this gold-covered chest. It's got this lid that contains the, some of the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Has, is, is said to have some manna from heaven, the bread that came down while the, the people were in the wilderness after the exodus. But what we see is not, that's significant, is not just the historical items it contained. It's this idea that Yahweh's presence was contained within, it was around it, was present there. That wherever the ark was, you would be able to meet with God. It was kind of like this mobile temple. It was like this mobile idea that well, God is really only in one place, which is their understanding of things. And so the ark was the manifestation, was the representation of God's presence. And so in this, we have to first go back to Exodus chapter 25, where Yahweh tells his people this. He says, I will meet with you there and talk, talk to you from above the atonement cover between the gold cherubim that hover over the ark of the covenant. From there, I will give you my, my, my commands for the people of Israel. This represents the presence of God. But as you fast forward through history, through the Old Testament, through the Hebrew Bible, and you get to the time of David, the unthinkable has happened. Because of their disobedience, Israel is defeated by the enemy, these Philistines, and some 30,000 Israelites are slaughtered in the battle. For that time, in this context, this is a monumental catastrophe. And the ark itself falls into enemies, enemy hands. And so as we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, the tide has turned. David has just now defeated the Philistines, who agree to return. They kind of reach peace terms. They're going to return the sacred objects to the people of God. And it says, again, a 30,000 massive soldiers, of Israelite soldiers, gather for this occasion. And let's pick up the story there in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It'll be on the screen. It said, then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Bala of, of Judah to bring back the ark of God. They placed the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house. You just got to go fast and confident with the Old Testament names, you'll get there. Which was on a hill. Uzzah, our guy, and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart that carried the ark of God. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Now, now I'm married to a self-proclaimed, so this is not a pejorative term, I'm married to a self-proclaimed band nerd, band geek, there she is. Uh, if we had met in high school, it, there would not have, sparks would not have flown because I would have made fun of her, because she was like in six bands, right, honey? Six bands, five bands, okay, sorry. Five bands in high school, because she was so proficient. Now, all the things that I learned in high school aren't really serving me well, and she can play music, so, so who's really the, the loser in this story? 
But here's the first kind of instance of a marching band, like, like celebrating this. This is an incredible thing. People cheering and shouting, 30,000 strong. The story goes on. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. David was angry because the Lord's anger had burst out against Uzzah. So why was Yahweh angry in this moment? Why would such an anger lead to someone dying? You can imagine, maybe you've been helping a friend move, and they load something on the truck, and it's kind of, it's kind of teetering, and you, you reach to grab it. It's kind of this instinctual reaction, and it's not just some box of you know, knickknacks or a piece of furniture. This is the presence of God, the ark of the covenant. After all, Uzzah was doing something good here. He's trying to keep the ark from falling. So surely, whatever he was doing did warrant Yahweh killing him. You would probably maybe side with David here. Is Yahweh a smiter after all? This is a difficult story, but it has to, forces us to ask this question. Why does Yahweh become angry? As we examine the story in the whole light of Scripture, because we all know, or we should quickly learn, that we can pull out one verse here and one verse there and build around a whole thinking that is bankrupt. We have to look at the entire scope of Scripture. If we go back to the time of Exodus after Yahweh gives the Israelites instructions on how to build the ark, they give very clear instructions of how the ark should be transported. That it was to be carried by priests. Remember that bar that was there so the litter of priests could carry it. And he repeats several times, recorded in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, three of the first five books of the Bible, about how that they should not touch the ark. But even after all these years later, it'd be difficult to forget in the moment how the ark was intended, was intended to be carried. Because in this moment, there's time, there's tragedy, there's this moment of necessity. They've just been conquered. Remember, it was Israel's disobedience that led to the capture of this, so it's not as like they are the most faithful people to begin with. But still, if disobedience is the only thing that gets Yahweh mad, then how are you or I living and breathing today? If disobedience is the bar, then we've all failed. I don't care what moral system you have, we are not perfect in the eyes of God. We are not perfect in the eyes of God. Then therefore, we are disobedient. We should be like Uzzah laying lifeless next to the ark. So if this is what Yahweh is mad about, what does that tell us? What does that tell us about God? What does that tell us about what God is doing? You can imagine it this way. Let's say I got to give Rich Miller, our worship pastor, a ride home after church today. And we're, we're there, and, and we're going to give him a ride, and, and then we walk out to the car, and I got this truck, and I don't open the passenger door for him. I tell him, Rich, you go ahead, you go and ride in the back. And there's, there's some junk back there, some trash and stuff. You just ride there in the bed of the truck, and we'll go down 471, and everything will be fine. That would be very disrespectful, right? It would be very disrespectful to, to do something like that. That would be an affront to our friendship. Even, even for someone like Rich, you know, who would be very comfortable in such a situation, right? It'd be an affront to him. But I think in this idea that they are transporting God's presence, and they're essentially asking God's presence to ride in the back, to ride in the bed, to ride in the trunk. The ark represents the very presence of God, and 
the reason that Yahweh instructed the ark to be carried on poles by priests was because that this is how royalty was honored, right? This is how royalty was honored in other cultures, and so therefore this communicates how important of a symbol and how important of a presence this is. Which leads us to believe that the primary reason that Yahweh got mad, that Yahweh got mad because his people were not valuing their friendship with him. Their lack of respect for the ark was symptomatic, was emblematic of what was going on, the breakdown between the people and God. And so I now I know that these reasons don't answer all our questions, but they do give us some understanding of what's going on here, that God, that God is angry, that Yahweh is angry about a breakdown in relationship. That God is not angry about a rule that wasn't followed. God is angry about what it symbolizes and what it means that there's this breakdown in relationship. Maybe a helpful thing, a helpful scene would be to remember that, that God is this loving father who desires to protect his family. And Yahweh is trying to spare his family what happened before. And like a good father, he possesses foresight and perspective that a child simply doesn't have. And Yahweh is able at this point to kind of step in and head things off for that child, for that kid, to avoid significant pain. Sometimes in the moment, imposing pain as well. Let me ask you this. Would you want to follow a God? Would you want to follow a God who is not passionate about his relationship with you? Would you want to follow a God who is not passionate about his connection to you? We speak often about this idea that, that Jesus, through what he did, kind of invites us into the family. We are adopted. We are now part of this. We are now co-heirs in God's eyes with Jesus, that Jesus' work does that for us. We want God to take that seriously, don't we? We want God to see that as important. That Yahweh here is, is, is kind of making, cementing the important things. When I compare what, what makes Yahweh mad to what makes me mad, I, I see how disproportionate it is. You know, I, I get mad when my kids don't listen. I get mad when somebody drives slow in the left-hand lane, right? I get, I get mad over the trivial things. I get mad over those little things. You're, you pull to a four-way stop. It's, it's so much of my anger comes around driving. Like I need to get a bike or something, right? But I pull to a four-way stop, and everyone's kind of like, oh, no, you go. No, you go. It's like, like you're screwing the whole flow of things up here, right? Or you go in a roundabout, and people stop in the middle of it. It's just like, ah. Oh. Like, these little trivial things that get me angry. Compared to God, compared to Yahweh, the things that I get angry about are so trivial. But Yahweh gets angry about a breakdown in relationship. We also see that Yahweh gets angry, and we see this in the Bible as well, that Yahweh gets angry over injustice. Now, we could talk at length about this. We could talk about how there's anger when there's violence against the innocent, when there's discrimination against entire people groups, when there's oppression of the poor. Unlike me, Yahweh gets angry over the right things. We see Jesus getting angry. We see Jesus getting angry and, and not just giving a snide comment or a passive-aggressive remark, but overturning tables and crafting a, 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 a whip out of rope and, and kind of driving people out of the temple courts. These people who were there, they were, they were making money off God's business. They were making money off God getting worship. People would come and they would need to buy, a, buy a, a, a small animal to make a sacrifice. They would come and they would have to essentially make change to give an offering. And people were charging interest. People were charging these exorbitant fees. And this is what makes Jesus mad. We see this over and over again that Jesus gets, does get mad about things. He gets mad when people are kind of denying access for children and other people. 
we see that Jesus gets upset about these things. But in the end, when we come back to our story, we can be mad that God took Isaiah's life. But we need to remember that God cares about relationships. He is passionate about justice. So much so that he was willing to give up his own life to protect his people. And another thing we need to remember, there's something else here that's really important. Yes, God gets angry. You know, when we ask this question, is God angry or loving? Is Yahweh angry or loving? It is kind of a yes answer here. It is kind of a both. But what we see over and over again throughout the Old Testament is he is described as being slow to anger. He is described as being slow to anger. He's like me who just one little thing sends me flying off the handle. One little thing kind of really grinds my gears and gets me frustrated. He is slow to anger. We see this over and over again in Numbers chapter 14. The, Moses writes, he says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. In Jonah chapter 4, we see that Jonah says, I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's interesting that here in the Old Testament, the people who knew Yahweh best describe him as being slow to anger. I don't know about you, but when I get angry, it's not a slow process. You know, sometimes I'll build up, but usually it's just, I mean, something just triggers. And maybe it's not anger for you. Maybe it's another emotion. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's, it's, it's discontentment. Maybe it's frustration, whatever it is. But for me, anger, it just happens. And you feel like you're kind of outside of yourself. But Yahweh is slow to anger. Yahweh is repeat, repeatedly described by those who knew him best as slow to anger. If you read the Old Testament, you'll find this pattern. It kind of goes like this, that Yahweh will deliver his people. They'll complain about it, but he is patient. They promise to obey, but the first opportunity they get, they disobey. The Yahweh eventually becomes angry and punishes them, and finally his people repent, and Yahweh delivers, and the cycle begins again. Yahweh is not fickle or unpredictable or spiteful. His anger is not tied directly. His anger is tied directly to his love. Did you notice in all these verses that we went through, the people who knew Yahweh best didn't say that he was angry and would just fly out the angel. They said that he was about love, that he was slow to anger, that Yahweh abounds in love. Anger and love are not mutually exclusive. Yahweh, yes, gets angry about a breakdown of relationship. It's Yahweh's love for people that leads to his anger over broken relationships. Yahweh gets mad, gets angry about injustice, but it's Yahweh's love for people that leads to his anger over injustice. It's important for us to remember that when we come across these stories in Scripture that are troubling, that, that, that we have issue with, that we see, we object to, and we, we're not quite sure of how to process it. It's important that when we do that, that we don't necessarily, we don't have to explain things away. When we come to these passages that are difficult, we don't have to simply say, well, here's what's going on and try to explain it. We can sit with this idea. We can allow this to be troubling because we don't understand the mind of God. It's important for us to remember that. But also, when we encounter a story like this, we need to ask ourselves, well, why did Yahweh get angry? We have to look for reasons that are connected to relationship, connected to justice, right and wrong. We have to look for this. Because the view of the story is the entire Old Testament, it's the entire Bible. God is both quick to love and slow to become angry. Yahweh is not a smiter. Yahweh is not looking for an excuse to strike you down. God is not looking for an excuse to punish you. 
what we see over and over again is the opposite. Before we wrap this up, I think we need to make this personal. I think we need to consider the things that make us mad. Because we all get mad about things. We all get mad about trivial things. We all get mad about important things. But we need to ask ourselves, why are we getting frustrated? I've joked about those things that get me angry, and you can kind of classify them in certain ways. It's about not getting my way. It's about having someone disrespect me or in my eyes disrespect me. It's all about being self-centered. It's about being inconvenienced. I'm like God who is quick to love and slow to become angry. I am often quick to become angry and slow to love. And my anger puts wedges between me and those who I love the most. I've noticed something with my kids. My kids are seven and five. I've noticed something that I'll be in the room, my wife will be in the room, and I'll be closer to my kids. My kids will come in, they'll ask for something, food or time on the tablet or something. They want to do something, and they don't ask me. They ask mom. We can laugh at that, and there's, there's kind of some funny moments in that, but it's also about this idea. Well, dad's the angry one. He says no a lot. Dad, dad's not a lot of fun. And it struck me this week, because my wife was out of town, and my in-laws were there, and they were great, and they were a huge help. But I noticed that, that they wouldn't ask me, they would ask Nana. And I started thinking to myself, well, why am I saying no so often? Why am I allowing myself to allow anger or frustration with them to, to put a wedge there? Why am I allowing myself to be driven by this anger? And this anger about things that aren't really that important. I think we need to recognize the way that anger can form a wedge in our relationships. Because God gets angry. God gets angry about a breakdown of relationships. And my anger, maybe it's anger for you, maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's, maybe it's apathy, maybe it's, maybe it's whatever it is, discontentment, whatever it is for you, whatever it is for you that causes a wedge in your relationships. God is upset about this. God is upset about this. So I guess my, my challenge to myself, my, my, my challenge to myself, my challenge to you is for us to get angry about the right things in the right way. Let's get angry about anything that is hindering us from going deeper in our relationship with God and with other people. Let's get angry about any action that will well up that will prevent that from happening until we are fully surrendered to the one who is so full of love. God gets angry about a breakdown of relationship, but God also gets angry about injustice. The people who make, make the biggest difference in the world and throughout history, you can see them over and over again, they fight injustice with love. Whether they be the people that we might think of, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, we think about the ways in which that nonviolence and love and rootedness on Jesus really change things, or we think about the people in the everyday. The people every day, very quietly, very humbly, through service, through humility, through love, through sacrifice, fight the challenges that we face. I want to be a person who gets angry about this. So here's the deal. I might have just said all that, and you just thought, man, he's sweating a lot. What's this about, right? Why, why, why are we talking about this? When we started Movement Church, one of the people that I, I felt the most strongly about trying to connect with 
Because why start another church when there's so many other churches that are out there? So many other good churches, so many churches that do everything better than us. Why do we need to start another church? Do we really need another church? And I had to have an answer for that. And one of the things that I came back to over and over and over again was that there was this group of people who maybe had gone to church at some point in their past, who maybe went to church every week, but felt like God was mad at them. And I thought about what kind of life that is. What kind of life is that where you're so afraid, where you're just walking on eggshells around God? We've all been in those moments relationally where we feel like we're walking on eggshells around someone that we care about, that we love. But what are those moments where we feel like we're walking on eggshells around God? How limiting, how depressing, how debilitating, how sad, how empty that kind of life is. And I've been that person. But what I see over and over and over again in the Bible is that we are not supposed to be in this fear of God that says, God's going to punish me. We are supposed to respect God. We are supposed to be in awe of God. We are supposed to tremble at the power and majesty of God. But we are not supposed to be walking on eggshells afraid that God is going to strike us down because that's not what we see. I read earlier from Psalm chapter 103. I want to read that portion I read, but I also want to read a bit more about this. In Psalm chapter 103, it says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. I read that, but now listen to what else he says, what else David says. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Think about that. Think about about this idea. We often say, well, look at how loving Jesus is. Yes and amen. But here in the Old Testament, before Jesus, we see David, someone who said he was after God's own heart, who knew God in such a powerful way, says, as far as the east is from the west, our transgressions, our mistakes have been blotted out, have been taken away. That God's love is so abounding, so immense, so huge, that this God would make it possible for us to move forward. Not in a fear that says, what is God going to do? But in a fear that says, I am so overwhelmed by the glory and majesty of God, I I cannot do anything else but worship. I cannot do anything else but respond and live in a certain way. That this way forward, this way of following Jesus isn't about rules, isn't about morality, isn't about any kind of achievement level status. It's about surrender, it's about worship, and it's about freedom. It's about freedom to be free of this fear. See, I I don't know... I don't know your background, but I know mine. I know mine that there were some sins that if you did them, it was unspeakable. It was beyond the pale. It was something that if you did that, then well, you're pushed out. You're no longer loved. And that's a lie. It's a full-on lie. I want to invite the band up. We're going to sing a song here as they come up and get situated. And it's a take on a very old song called It Is Well. And I, and I love the idea of the song because 
it puts us in the right position in terms of our humility. Where we say we cannot understand the mind of God. We read scripture, we see that God becomes angry, yes. We see that God is, is full of love and is love and is, is, is abounding in love, yes. But in all of this, we have to be able to come to a place where we say, well, who am I? Who am I in this grand scheme, this grand story? Well, I'm not the main character. God is. And if I'm not the main character, I can't put myself in a spot where I can begin to understand the main character's intent. But I can connect with the main character. I can commune with the main character. I can receive love and forgiveness and grace. So is God angry? Yeah. God's really ticked about some things. He's ticked that there's breakdowns in relationships between him and his people, us. He's ticked that there's breakdowns and relationships between you and I and those that we don't consider our neighbors but are according to Jesus. He's ticked about the injustices of the world, that people suffer, that people are hurting, that people are in pain, that people are judged, that people are, are hated, all of that stuff. He is mad about that. But the crazy thing about God and the crazy thing about what Jesus did, that God on earth did, was that he made it possible that those of us who perpetuate the greatest evil in the world, those of us who perpetuate any and all evil in the world can be loved and forgiven. And when I think about evil, when I think about darkness, when I think about pain, when I think about all the things that I say, God, why don't you act? Why doesn't your anger fix this problem? I think about Jesus on the cross. I think about injustice there. I think about a breakdown of relationship. And I see God incredibly angry. How could he not? And Jesus, who was tortured before he was even nailed to that cross, where he slowly bled out and suffocated, I think about the ways in which in that moment God was slow to anger. God was slow to anger because this, this was an act of love. This was an act where we can say in the midst of all this, this is good. It is well. It is a way for us to move forward. And every Sunday here at Movement we celebrate that. And one of the ways that we celebrate that is through communion where we come and we take this symbolic meal that celebrates that loving act, where God, being slow to anger, gave us all another chance. Gave us all another chance to move forward, not in fear of what God might do to us, but in hope of what is possible. Not in fear over the brokenness and the distance we sense between God and us, but in the ability to say we can come close and we can experience something better. Jesus calls it the full life, the good life, the kingdom of heaven where God gets what God wants in the here and the now. And that doesn't start when you die. It starts in the now. So if you're a follower of Jesus, the band will play and sing this powerful song, and I would invite you during that time to stand and sing and declare something that you know to be true that you want to be true. I would invite you during that time, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come to these tables at the front, to take a piece of bread that represents the body of Jesus, the body of Jesus that was tortured and executed, 
and to dip it in the juice and eat it as a way of saying that that body and that blood that was shed is for me, is for us, and I want to be a part of that. The greatest sermon you could ever speak, the greatest message you could ever give, the most absolute declaration of who you want to be is in moments like this where you can act and not say a word. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to invite you to stand. And in this time, we can worship the God who loves and the God who gets mad. Father, thank you so much.